This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and so much more with me, Adam Smith. If charter schools are public schools, then why are they so misunderstood by the majority of the public? Charter schools are, in fact, publicly funded schools that were designed to give families choice based on their child's needs within the traditional public school system. Some of the bad rap may come from the fact that the majority of charter schools are not unionized and that limited public resources follow the students to whatever public school they attend. These competitive realities, coupled with some poor outcomes in schools operated by large organizations and the fact that over 60% of students attending charters are Black or Latino, and the misinformation plague is at all-time levels. The best charter public schools focus on engaging the village, decreasing the achievement gaps, and providing high levels of accountability for student success. An example of one such school is One City Schools in Madison, Wisconsin. Today, we're joined by Kaleem Kerr, the founder and CEO of One City Schools, the operator of One City Preschool and One City Elementary School. Both schools are focused on getting young children ready for school success. Prior to One City, Kaleem was the president and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Madison and the chair of the National Urban League's Education Committee. Prior to his time with the Urban League, Kaleem held other executive positions with Target Corporation, Fight for Children in Washington, D.C., Black Alliance for Educational Options, American Educational Reform Council, and the Wisconsin Center for Academically Talented Youth. In 2009, he was appointed by the Obama administration to serve as an expert reviewer for his signature Race to the Top, a national education reform initiative. Kaleem's life commitments are to create opportunities in places where people need them the most, to move people from poverty to prosperity, and to raise strong and caring children in his own home. Kaleem Kerr, welcome, brother. Happy New Year. Thank you for sharing the time and the space with us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Can you talk a little bit, because I know you have quite the background in education. Um, For all of the listeners, kind of talk about your journey to and through education and what landed you specifically doing the work with One City. Yeah, so it's a long story. I'll try to make it shorter, but, you know, grew up in Madison, graduated from high school here, went to a combination of private and public school, um, public school, kindergarten, and then again, eighth through 12th grade and private school in between, first through seventh. Had an interesting experience doing that. You know, I felt like at my private school, I was taught, and at my public school, I was managed. Growing up in the neighborhood with all the kids that went to public school, when I started liking girls, sixth, seventh grade, wanted to go to school with all my peers, so I was able to go, starting in eighth grade, and really felt it was a mistake partway through it because I realized how many of my peers were struggling academically, how many couldn't read, et cetera. And I just sit with that just sat with me for a long time, especially as I made my way through West High School and was always in upper level college brown classes, but only had classes three times with black students. And I can count them. I remember the names of the students that were in my classes and it was it didn't feel good, you know. 
And uh, when I got got out of there, barely graduated from high school to 1.5 GPA, ended up going in the military rather than going on to play any college sports, which was my goal. And it was in the military that I found my calling and leadership, but also discipline, like what it means to be disciplined and follow through and make a plan and get things done and being able to be coached and perform the level of coaching that you're getting. Um, you know, and so I realized that most of what I was experiencing in my early adult years were things that I should have been experiencing in my childhood years, especially in school. And I wasn't from the time I left that Catholic school until I got um, into the military. It's like, you know, if you didn't want to apply yourself, there were very few people who were pushing you. And so when the opportunity came for me to get more involved in education, when then I started going to Hampton University, I was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia in the, um, in the Navy and a uh, submarine. I started to see in that area, you have Norfolk State, you have Virginia State, you have Virginia Union, you have all these schools there and, you know, black schools that you're just surprised, like, man, they, they have this many black colleges. You see black students on campus serious about their academics and, you know, um, looking and planning to go off in the world and do great things. And I had not seen that many black students that successful or that focused on education before. And it's also the first place once I enrolled in Hampton that uh, that ever had a black teacher in 13 years of education. And then if you count that 15, if you count preschool, never had a black teacher, man. And I only saw one in the schools that I that I was in. Um, there was a black principal at Cherokee Middle School. There was a black assistant principal at West. And then there was Henry Hawkins, who was our teacher at West High School. That was it. But I never had, you know, him for a teacher. So when I ended up coming back to Madison, I was pre-med. This was the early 90s and was going to be a physician. That was my plan. Started volunteering in an old neighborhood. And that's where, you know, you and I soon later after that connected. But it's where I started to see the decline in the south side and the decline of the neighborhood. And then a lot of the challenges that we had when I was growing up, there was no Ally Drive. You know, Ally Drive was there, but it wasn't a problem. People just didn't live there. And then I left and came back and then now Ally Drive was the issue. And they had just like they sort of grew the South Side. They started referring to that as the South Side. And to us, that was the West Side. You know, so it's like, what, what? what? And then everything, anytime there was a problem, they called it South Side. It was the Southeast Side. If it was Monona, it was the Southwest Side. It was all the way out by the Elver Park. And people live in Madison know that those are West Side communities. But it was a way for realtors and others to... I guess mar participating in marginalizing the community and giving it a name so that people would, they could say, this is where the problems are. They're contained in these areas, not the rest of the city. So that's where I started to look. My eyes were wide open and I started paying more attention to what was happening to the kids I was tutoring at the neighborhood center on the South side. And then I started to see my friends. So between them coming and going from jail for crack cocaine and prison, um, knowing some who've been murdered and seeing, you know, things that I shouldn't have seen even growing up and then uh, going to the university and seeing so few of us on campus. That's where I started making the connection. If we don't dig deeper and start working with these young people early, we're not going to have more young people going to college. We're not going to have more young people who want to change and improve the situations in the neighborhoods where we live. So that's what got me into education, man. But um, I said I was going to be a teacher. I switched from pre-med to being an educator. 
got my degree eventually at the university in 2000. It took me eight years to get it uh, because I had kids in between. I had three kids by the time I finished school. But um, I went to UW. What was asked when I was at UW my last year of school and was asked by the Department of Public Instruction, my last year taking classes, um, asked by the Department of Public Instruction in Wisconsin to do some work for them because my they reached out to them and said, who could help us do some research on what the state has done on minority student achievement? And so they thought about it and they said, you know what? He's an undergrad. He's in a graduate department because they there were four professors that helped me create my degree. One of them is Bill Tate, the president of LSU. He was a professor at Madison. Another one was Gloria Ladson Billings. She was the actual chair of my degree. Um, she was the, um, you know, she's the progenitor of cultural love and teaching in America. And so they asked for me. They said, well, you know, let's let's talk to him and see if he'd be interested. So that's where I started cutting my teeth on policy. I started researching it, seeing what was going on um, around the state. Um, in the seven weeks, I wrote a 300-page document with a like a 40-page summary. And here's all the things you've done going back to 1934, all the way up to 1997. And they were shocked that I had that much detail. And what it showed was the state only really got money from the feds and passed it through. They didn't really put a lot of money in themselves to address this issue. So that's when I started seeing the systemic problems. And so from there, I said, well, let's look at how kids are doing. And we started looking at dropout rates and things like that. And when I found out that dropout rates only looked at the number of kids who started 12th grade and finished, I was like, wait a minute, what about the kids who start ninth grade? And so that's when I had um, this guy, Tom Beebe, who ran the research division up there. He agreed to look at the data and crunch it for us. And he was the director. I think he stayed up all night, man. Um, I think that's what he told me. He ran the data twice and he said, I didn't, I didn't even go home. He said, I'm shocked. He said, Kaleem, can I, can we go in this room? And he showed me the data. He said only 50% of black and Latino kids were graduating who started ninth grade. And he said only 72% of white students. And so when um, he was, when he, when he was sharing this with me, I was like, oh my God, how do we, um, how do we address this issue with uh, systemically when nobody's going to believe this? And so that's when we tried to get the state superintendent to publish it. He wouldn't do it. He said it would paint too much of a black eye for stu for schools in Wisconsin. He also said we needed to be more peer reviewed and all of that, trying to slow it down. So then I went to Milwaukee, talked to a brother there named Howard Fuller, who's noted in education nationally, internationally. And he said, I don't know what to tell you, because he had been the first black state elected state appointee in Wisconsin. And he said, um, I don't know what to tell you, man. He said, you know, you can work on the inside or the outside. He said, I'm, I'm, I've decided to work on the outside. I was superintendent in Milwaukee Public Schools four years. I almost killed him. Oops, sorry. And um, he said that uh, he invited me to get involved and look at some schools with him. And I said, you know, I'll look at some schools, but I'd like to go visit them. So he invited me to visit some voucher and charter schools in Milwaukee. And when I saw some of our black kids in schools that we created doing well, and then down the street, they were in public schools and they were fighting outside the day I got there. I'm like, this is, this is, this is, there's a solution. And so that's when I started really drifting away from tr the traditional style of public education 
to look at more options. And from there, brother, went to got involved with Dr. Fuller. I became the first president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, an organization he started, which um, it took me away from Madison. We were in Milwaukee for one year, and then we moved to D.C. And so that's what took me to D.C. for a decade. And while I was there, we you know we started growing organization. Um, I commissioned a nation study on high school graduation in 2001, which is why we talk about graduation rates around the world today. And the Bush administration took note of it. Um, Secretary Rob Page and his team uh, came and brought us up and to meet with me and the researchers and peer reviewers. And when they realized it was legit, they were working on the nation's next iteration education law, No Child Left Behind. It's an elementary and secondary act of 1965, but they just rename it every 10 years. And so they said they were gonna embed graduation rates in No Child Left Behind and make it part of law. So that's when we started looking at it. So now I became popular in those circles. And then I got involved with some of the college readiness stuff. There's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I asked them to keep this study going. So there's somewhere in there, they partnered up with education. We created Diplomas Count, this, this um, annual report that they would put out. And it became a thing, man. Every state now had to look at graduation rates and then um, I encouraged the Gates Foundation and others in the research we were working with Jay Green to look at the power of the diploma. So our kids ready for college and other people had wanted to look at that. Well, now we had a reason to. So that's when they started looking at college readiness and saw that not only are the students, um, you know, they are um, getting, uh, they're not graduating, they're not ready for college. And only like 10%, 5% of black kids in cities around the country were ready. So that's why I got really deep into policy, man. I was invited by the U.S. Department of Education to sit on a panel that advised U.S. Congress on No Child Left Behind. Um, the White House supported that. I did that for five years. And then uh, Obama, when he was elected and he launched his Race to the Top initiative, I was vetted out of 1,500 people and invited to be a part of his Race to the Top initiative, which was we were one of 62 experts reviewing where those first two rounds of the money were going to go to states. At the same time I was out there, man, I was involved with um, helping to seed all the options that kids have in Washington, D.C. Um, I started working for an organization called Fight for Children. And um, my job was to lead the effort. They called it the three-sector effort. That's what we called it where it's over a billion dollars has been invested through the legislation we got passed, which also had money attached to it in the reformation of the public education in DC. So all those charter schools, the money that's really helped move the public schools forward and the establishment of the private school voucher program, my job was to kick all that off. We launched the voucher program out of my office. We developed the Charter School Association. So I've done a lot of this stuff, man. Helped develop schools, helped support schools, chaired the board of schools. And then I ended up coming back to Madison to lead the Urban League in 2010 because I really got burned out on the politics of Washington. As an interim, I did two years at Target Corporation thinking I'll just go into corporate America and do that. And then ended up going from there to, um, you know, from uh, coming back to lead the Urban League to then establishing one city schools because we couldn't get a school through the Urban League. This, the, the teachers union was really opposed to it. So it's just there's a lot more there. But that's what I've been doing, man, over the years, really trying to seed options for kids locally, nationally, been successful with it. But the sad thing is, man, is that I can't work faster than the problems growing. Oh, that's for sure. Well, and 
if y'all can't see Kaleem, you would think he's 78 years old for all the stuff he's done. <laughs> he, 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 sometimes we feel 78 years old. Yeah, that's right. Kaleem and I met for everyone. We met when I had finished. I was in the first cohort of AmeriCorps working in the Viracourt neighborhood on uh, south-ish side. Everything was south side of Madison. And somehow they made this 23-year-old after my AmeriCorps stint a director of a neighborhood center on Ally Drive, which is mm -hmm. what Colleen was talking about. And we really coalesced because the kids on Ally Drive had been moved to three different elementary schools over the last over those four years. There was four years prior, and they were going to move them again because they had this formula in Madison at the time where they believed if a school population was over X percent of, they would say, low-income kids, that the school was destined for failure. And they really right. didn't have any data to support that. And so Kaleem and I and the neighborhood residents and community people really organized a substantial effort in Madison to, okay, well, stop moving our kids around and build a school in our neighborhood. And we would have to sit in these board meetings and community meetings and talk about, because what we got back is the school would be segregated. And I still remember you talking about the difference between de facto and de jure segregation. Because mm -hmm. Allied Drive was not all black folks. It mm -hmm. was probably a third Southeast Asian, a third black and a third Latino, right? And so segregated what what is that how about just build a school where the neighborhood center is and make it a lighthouse concept for the community and part of one of the interesting things brooke is after i left madison shoot in 98 99 um we've had kind of these parallel trajectories because the time i spent in rockford working because mayor daly appointed arnie duncan mayor morrissey appointed me to be education czar is what they called it. Um, this idea of so goes education, so goes the city. And so when Daly did the same thing and Arnie and Greg Darnieder and those guys are running, then all of the Collar County mayors are like, okay, we're going to do the same thing. And so at this point I'm 30 and I get this job and I'm like, what are we? And the first thing we did was create some legislation and some citywide, countywide legislation around truancy. We had this major in Rockford where only 25% at the time of the adults had a college degree, education beyond high school. It was just systemic, this problem where the culture was skip school. And it didn't matter how old you were, first graders, second graders, third graders, right? It wasn't a big deal. And so we created an entire, we created a truancy ordinance, city and countywide, making being truant basically unexcused from school, illegal. And people are like, that's real punitive. No, the community, Kaleem, you know me, it was the community. So then what happened was we started engaging all of the community organizations, the pastors. Yeah, and kids would have to go to a truancy hearing with a hearing officer and they would have to do either education with the family or more importantly a lot of the middle and high school kids had to do service so That's on the correct. weekends they'd be serving because what happened in that district was because of state funding they reduced the school day from seven periods to six and they didn't count the cut out the back end they cut out the front end 
So if you're in a blue collar working class city, the parents went off to work thinking the kids were going to school. Right. They had no idea. Kids weren't even getting on the bus. That's right. And so the parents were so appreciative. Like, why didn't y'all tell us? Now, the people who lost their minds after we reduced truancy 45% in a year in that, in that city were the, um, the teachers union. Because they didn't want those troublemaking kids back in school. Back in the schools, yeah. Right? <laughs> and so now you all back, because then we created this youth movement and did all this really cool things. But the one thing that stuck in my mind, and I wanted to have you on to talk about charter, and let me be clear, charter public schools. Right. right? Charters, charter schools are public schools. That's right. And in Illinois, there was at the time a law that said, and don't quote me on the numbers, but there were 40 charters that were allowed in Chicago. And then there was another 20 allowed in the collar counties and another 20 allowed downstate. So that's anywhere else. Right. So, and that was it. That was charter law. And so we, as we looked at options, because in Rockford, we had some of the same challenges. We had achievement gap issues. We had truancy issues. We had, you know, school being paced on what used to work when people worked the fields and were farmers. That didn't, and manu, it didn't, doesn't really work for everyone. And so we started looking at, and we leaned into at the time, Senator Obama to change Illinois charter law because there weren't enough, there were too many charters that were already given. They were all in Chicago. And so there weren't any left. And so we did that. And then we took time and started vetting charter operators. And I'm not talking, we won't talk about the big companies. I'm talking about Polaris and charter schools, um, Galapagos Charter, those kind of things, right? Urban prep, charter schools that were founded by teachers and educators who are passionate like you about the work. And so today... There is at least three charter public schools in Rockford, Illinois, that weren't there prior to the, and we had to create a whole citywide movement because in Illinois, and we can talk about Wisconsin, the the body that grants charters, at least at the time, was the local school board, mm. right? That's like McDonald's making a decision that you can have In-N-Out Burger up the street because the money <laughs> follows the kid, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was so challenging because the, even with charters that were targeting high school dropouts, the school district didn't want to fund them. Mm -hmm. It's no, no, we don't want to do it. And so it took this groundswell campaign of community, you and I, I mean, that's where we do everything is from the bottom up in this grassroots piece. I still remember when the school district and the teachers union pushed back against our truancy ordinance and started trying to paint it as something punitive for black and brown and poor families. Um, we had <laughs> we had a community re meeting and press conference in the middle of one of the oldest black churches in Rockford. And we had the imams and the pastors. And I mean, I work for the mayor, but you know what I can do. We can get together the people. And all the and the brothers were like, no, no, no. The hundred was there, the fraternities and sword. They're like, no, this is what the community wants. That's We're right. not punishing and fining and doing harm to families and kids. We want the kids in the school. If you don't mind, talk a little bit about what charter public schools are 
and what they aren't. Some of the history, but in specific, what are charter public schools? How do they operate? What are some of the expectations, the accountability, those kind of things? You know, the charter schools were started in Minnesota. Uh, that was the first law. It was 90 or 91 when it went into place. Um, it you was, know everything good comes from Minnesota. Did you know yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, we got Adam there, do you? That's right. Yeah, me, me and Prince. Me and Prince <laughs> and charter public schools. Yes, yes. Okay. You know, Go so, and the goal was with union support um, at that point, um, Al Shanker was the head of the American Federation of Teachers, was promoting the idea of charter schools that there was a professor at New York University who was, I believe it's New York University, who was really the progeny of like the the thinking behind chartering public schools to help overcome the red tape that they felt were inhibiting change and transformation in public schools. But they had the idea that it would be teachers who would start these schools and run these schools. And then as soon as they opened up the law in Minnesota, uh, Ted Coldery, Joe Nathan, people like that were really pushing it. Um, they got it passed. And they found that there weren't enough people to take on these because teachers are not business people. And if you're going to start a school, it's a business, it's a structure, it's a function. You got to hire people, you got to do audits, you got to do accounting. And so they then opened it up to not only nonprofits, but for profits with the idea that these were models of innovation. We're going to see new models of innovation when I get the business community involved. Well, politics were in place and that's when the union, when it was passed, the union backed away and started saying that charters were bad because now it wasn't about them and managing that workforce. And they're thinking about how charters should take place. It was now taken out of their hands. And there is where the conflict started. Wisconsin's law went into place in 93. And they were thinking, they're one of the first 10 states to pass charters. And it just grew from there. But the whole idea was that public traditional public schools were too big. They were like Titanics, trying to turn them around and transform them. People felt it's impossible to do. We haven't done it yet, even at that point. So let's create these smaller versions of public schools or then public districts, because all charter schools are their own local education agencies. We're all school districts, um, unless we're controlled by a school district. And so they said, let's do that. Let's see if we can learn how we could improve public education, how we could expand opportunity, how we could create more innovation. And so that's been the goal. But the problem is because of the the push against charter schools, you started to see charter schools align themselves with each other and then form associations to protect their own interest and their own uh, livability and um, survivability. And then you ended up having two separate institute, two separate pathways of public education, two different industries, one that has more flexibility, but less money. This one over here that has very little flexibility, but a lot more money. And they don't really work together, unfortunately, because they feel like they compete for the same resources. And so where charters you'll find probably are a little more amenable to partner with traditional public schools. Traditional public schools see charter schools often, not always, but often as a threat. And so they're public schools. That was their intent where the conflict started to arise. And now we have people who are like, well, public schools take money from, or charter schools take money from public schools are all private schools. All charter schools in the United States of America are public schools. They are not private schools. Private schools are non-public schools that um, no, you don't have to take or keep kids with special needs. 
But in charter schools, you have to. We have to abide by non-discrimination laws, special ed laws. If we take food program money, we got to abide by those federal standards, state standards. We have to submit audits. We're beholden to whoever gave us our charter. Some state, most states have independent chartering authorities that are sort of quasi-government agencies that make the decision on who gets a charter, who gets to keep it. They might provide some type of technical assistance or support. They definitely provide reviews of charter schools. And then the state has, for all states have functions where they have charter schools on how to fund those schools and provide grants and things that that traditional public schools have access to. And we don't get access to all the funds that traditional public schools get access to, we get quite a few, but we just don't get enough money. And so that's where that's where we are, man. In public school, they're public schools. A lot of people have been made to think that they're not, but they are. Well, and the history is interesting because it it's almost like charters were created as a think tank, a lab right? Yeah. A laboratory school that mm -hmm. was public where we could look at practice, we could look at pedagogy, we could try things that we could pivot. But then what happens is money, greed, sin. Um, in this case, you know, we understand the teachers unions. I'm a union guy. I love unions. But at the end of the day, they were representing the interest of the teachers. Right. And That's most charters aren't unionized spaces. Is that mm -hmm. fair, Colleen? That's fair. Yeah. And so that's one of the challenges is that the union wants everybody to be in the union. And there's charters that operate on different academic calendars and different start times and end times. And there's a lot more flexibility and options. Can you talk about, because you brought up when you were Urban League president, mm -hmm. right? Shout out to my guy, Ruben Anthony, who now is the president in Madison. I wouldn't yeah. have had a job without Wanda Anthony. So let's just be clear. Go that's, ahead. My, that's my girl. So um, she's the one that hired me at Madison Metropolitan School District right out of undergrad. Um, love me some Miss Wanda. So um, you were at the Urban League. You tried to get a charter through the Urban League. Mm -hmm. What were some of the stumbling blocks? I know one of your constant challenges and one of the things that's a proverbial bee in your bonnet is this achievement gap issue in Madison that yeah. you were nationwide, Wisconsin-wide, but especially in your hometown. Mm -hmm. So is that what made the Urban League look at a charter? What was some of the reasons why it didn't happen? And then why has one city happened? Yeah. So when I came back to the Urban League, there was controversy, uh, mostly love, but they had a board chair um, who I respect. But in my interview, somewhere in the interview process where the board had 13 board members and they voted, they were going to vote 12. She was going to she was going to vote against me as a, she was the chair of the board, because one was my background in education. She didn't think it would play well in Madison being a charter and school voucher person because I started the voucher program with people in D.C. too. She um, so she ended up resigning from the board so that I could have a full vote. And um, so I sort of came in with a little bit of that controversy hovering over me. Um, there was a feeling when I came back from the black community, remember Miss Malele or Jumoja wrote this great piece. She's like, I'm gonna write the first article about our prince coming back home. That's what she told me. And so I ended up uh, coming back and walked into a sea of love 
but then there were islands of discontent in that sea. And those were people who looked at my background, who only knew what they could find online and started to say, oh, he rolls with Republicans because there was a picture with me with John Boehner, who was the Speaker of the House at the time. You know, I had to meet, I had to work with all those people in leadership, both White Houses, et cetera. I'm an independent politically, have been since 2000, uh, when Bush and Gore ran against each other. I used to be a Democrat. And so people tried to malign me, man, so that I couldn't get anything done. And I said to the board, I am going to look at starting schools in Madison, laboratory schools that we can learn from, that our kids can grow from. We got to turn this thing around. And that's where I think she left. She, the board chair, jumped and left the board. But it was just constant push, man. It was a constant fight in the midst of building it. So we built a lot of community support. Like people were coming to the table left and right, but corporate community largely because of the pushback of the teachers union and the establishment, a lot of them remained silent on the issues. So yeah, um, it was me and community leaders pushing. And then you had um, some of the legacy institutional nonprofits who also had whispered to me and said, we think it's a great idea, but we can't really get out there with you on it. You know, I was one of the seven founders of 100 Black Men in Madison. I was disappointed when I went to meet with the brothers and asked them for their help because the superintendent said, if you can get groups like that to the table, it makes it easier for me to support this. And they only agreed to write a letter of support and read it at a board meeting. So it was like people were scared, man. And so um, we ended up galvanizing the community. We know we had the majority community support, but the school board was pretty much owned by the teachers union. And so we got a five to two vote against us. There was one gentleman who wanted to vote with us, but he's a lawyer. And because the um, year prior, Act 10 went into place, and that's where our governor at the time, Scott Walker, when he became governor, took his seat in January of 2010, took over from a Democrat. He's a Republican. Within weeks, they had um, clandestine, and people refined it as a clandestine meeting where they called all these legislators back for an emergency, emergency meeting. You know, it takes five, six hours to get from northern Wisconsin down here. And so they were able, within a two hours notice, I believe, vote out teachers unions. So like most unions could no longer bargain for anything other than salary in Wisconsin, outside of like police and fire and healthcare unions. And so that's where um, we then got lumped into the advocacy against what was happening to them. So they conflated our issue of charter schools with people trying to kill teachers unions to galvanize support to fight both. And that's where we started to lose some ground and got to the point where they were fairly flamboyant in their efforts to vote against us. When we had a meeting at Memorial High School, they had to move the school board meeting for the first time ever, I believe, out of the school district Doyle building because they didn't have enough seats and they were worried about security. There was somebody that made a, a, a violent, a physical violent threat towards me, a very serious one. And so the police department called me up that morning and said, hey, this is the issue. I went to go in and meet with the security leader at MMSD, who was a former police um, leader. And Luis told me this. He said, we're going to have a lot of plainclothes officers in this inside the building, and we're going to have uh, cars outside. We just didn't want, we want to let you know this so for your safety and protection, but we also want your family to feel secure and for the community to understand that we're not out here just because you're a black guy trying to get a school. 
And so it was crazy, man, to see all these squad cars and everybody there. It was intense. 700 people showed up. Um, most of the people were wearing our T-shirts that we were handing out. We had 500 of them and gave them all out. The union had, we counted 22 people with their shirts on. They spoke. We had 66 people speak. And it went from 6 p.m. to after midnight. And then the board members pull out, the ones who voted against us, pulled out their pre-prepared statements, read them, and voted against us and pissed the community off. Because they were like, man, this was this whole thing was a sideshow. You already all already had it baked in what you were gonna do. And so I remember the next day that that evening, or the next the next day, I don't know, it was that weekend, Neil Heinen, who had a show on TV, uh, editorial he would do every Sunday in the evening. He ripped into the school district. I had never seen that before from a, from him or somebody in the media. And he's like, where is your plan? You told us now that you have a plan. Where is it? And the, the superintendent at the time, who just recently passed away, he didn't have a plan. And so he was telling people he did, but he I think he was assuming that even with his advocacy against it in the union that we still might get through. When it did, now people were coming to him like, okay, where's your plan? So were his board members. He didn't have one, so then he lost his job, had to move on. And so it was just crazy. But what I did is I just decided, you know what, most of these people pushing against us are a lot older than me. And I will either outlive them physically or professionally, I will outlast them, right? So I just said, you know, and I'm just going to focus, go further, go down to preschool, get out of the public school environment, and then show people what we're really about. And so that's when... Uh, Child Development Incorporated, the oldest child care center in Dane County, Madison, decided that they were going to close their doors. So they were coming to me to try to get help. And so I was trying to help them. But then they said, what if we gave you this building and you could start your school here, but started as a preschool? This was 2014. And I said, whoa, wasn't thinking about it like that. But if you guys did that, I would do it. And that's when a woman, Sally Martiniak from Ford Community Investments, they are a community development financial institution and make investments and in grants into nonprofits. She said, Colleen, we've never done this before, but what if I can convince my board to buy that building for you and lease it back to you for a dollar every year until you could buy it from us so that you could get your school started? I was like, what? Whoa. Heck yeah, I'll start the school. So that's how we got started. We started with the preschoolers and then people were able to see what we were trying to do. And then the state expanded the ability to have independent charter schools outside of Milwaukee. So I no longer had to worry about going through the school board to get it where I would be owned by them. Or our schools would be, I would just start it. Kaleem, let me just throw out, that's a so that's a key point, right? I mean, let me be clear. This brother and I have been shoulder to shoulder fighting for a school for Madison, Wisconsin, for all kids, not for black kids, not for brown kids, not for poor kids, not for for all kids and for all families that fills the gap because all schools don't work for everybody. And the reality is when you're wealthy, whether your kid is on an IEP and or 504 or they're all the things, you can just buy them an alternative. The reality is the people, regular people can't do that. So you are stuck with option A. There is no option B. Option B is dropping out, right? And so you and I have been shoulder to shoulder fighting for schools for your community 
Senshu, 95, 96. I mean, so to get first, I mean, first thing in my mind when when you start saying that, well, they're going to buy the building and lease it back to you for a dollar, it's like, look at God. It isn't about if, it's about when. And it was outlasting. It was, yeah, a winding road to the Department of Public Instruction, to Milwaukee, to D.C., to the Urban League, to all this stuff. But like you said, what, what tell us about starting your school. So talk a little bit, because the piece that's so interesting is, like I said, when the local school board are the ones deciding who gets a charter, that's challenging. It's political, it's problematic, it's divisive in communities, right? Some states like Michigan, Michigan is a state where it has independent. And so you have different different um, universities that may have the ability to grant charters and those kind of things. The challenge is when you're making this about the local school board, I've run for local school board, and it was all about the endorsement of the teachers' union. I mean, that's who wins, right? And so that's really, really impactful. So that independent switch that happened in Wisconsin gave one city the ability to go from a preschool to an independent charter. Talk about those phases, because y'all have grown since 2014 in phases. Right. So, yeah, so from 2014 to 2015, we were just putting an organization together. And so the founding of the organization is actually July 30th of 2014, because that's when the IRS received our application for nonprofit status and stamped it. And that's when they backdate your your um, non-determination letter, which is your approval to be a 501c3. Also happens to be my birthday, which was ironic. So, um, so we started the organization. We had a kickoff at a company that was called Cuban Mutual um, Organization, big, and they're insured. They're the insurers of all credit unions, and um, big company here. They now changed their name to True Stage, but uh, we had to kick off there. I remember their foundation leader coming up to me and said, "I've never seen 400 people show up." I think he told us to everybody. He said, "I've never seen 400 people show up for an organization that hasn't even started yet." <laughs> Said so, it was that powerful. Unfortunately, on the same night, we had the shooting of a young man named um, Tony Robinson by the police, and so that captured international, national attention. It was when all the shootings were really taken off and people reporting on them. So we lost a little steam on the fundraising side because people were turning their attention to that. But we then ended up getting the um, that was March of 2015. We ended up getting enough money though to open opened the building because the Ford Community Investments purchased it for us. We moved every, all 40, 50 years of furniture and everything else out of there. Um, and then we ended up starting the school in Pastor Alex G's church, uh, Fountain of Life Church. It's a, he built onto the church and added a wing below it. And I think that wing opened up that, like that earlier that year. And so it just so happened he was the co-chair of my board. So we leased it from them for a nominal fee, started our preschool with six kids, two teachers, a director, and myself who went unpaid for the first year, year and a half, because I couldn't afford to pay myself. So I had to do work for other entities in order to bring money into my household. So after we started that, we quickly grew to 16 kids. We couldn't grow anymore while we renovated the building we purchased. Once that renovation was completed, we then moved into there in June of 2016. 
And then by December, we were already full with 52 kids and 77 kids on a wait list. And that was one-year-olds through four-year-olds. And then when the UW system was given the authority by the state legislature and the governor to charter public schools, they 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 opened the law up in 2017 where any four-year college or two-year college in the instant in Wisconsin could charter schools if they wanted to. But if those students, any student who went to that school, they're called two X charter schools. They could come from anywhere around the state of Wisconsin. So the boundaries are: I have some kids live in Janesville, you know, which is an hour south of, well, about a uh, forty-five minutes south of here. That come to my school, and so we were able to get the law. The law was passed in twenty seventeen. UW system entered into an immediate process to approve some charters. We were one of their first two charters, and we were their real first true charter because the other charter was used to be a private school that just converted. And so we became their first charter, man. And we um, opened up grades 4K and 5K. And that was our first charter. And our objective with them was we don't want to do a charter for a full elementary yet because y'all are new. We're new. We want to see how this works. We want to see what the money looks going to look like because the Department of Public Instruction couldn't tell us what our resources from like federal aid and things like that would look like until we had been in business for a year. And so they were able to give us some insight that next February after our into our first year of school. So we then said, all right, well, we're going to submit to expand our program through sixth grade then. And so that's when we put another poll in, they approved it. And then we just kept adding a grade a year. Pandemic hit, thought we were going to have to close both the preschool and the elementary school at that point. We were able to ride the storm with a lot of community giving and support and staff who stayed on board. And we moved into Mount Zion Church at that point from our building because we didn't have enough space in it for first grade. Then we moved to another play, another big building that we had to lease the whole lower floor for, was it $500,000 for that year? It was crazy. But um, we ended up moving the kids over there. And then we found our permanent full-time home, which is a 13.5 acre campus, 157,000 square foot building. And we moved into that. So we moved, we started the elementary school 2018, moved in, over to Mount Zion in 2019, put first grade there. 2020, we moved to the, it's called Knob Hill uh, building. And then we were there for a year. And in 2021, we moved to our permanent home. And now we have almost 400 students between our schools, um, almost 100 staff. We have two teachers in every classroom through second grade, an assistant teacher to split because we have two grade levels every age, every um, uh, two classrooms every grade level. And so we have two teachers, kindergarten first, well, 4K kindergarten first, second. And then once the kids get to third through fifth, they have an assistant teacher that splits between the two classrooms to provide support. And we provide a lot for our kids, man, but it's been quite the journey. Um, it's been extremely challenging. We've raised almost $50 million in private money to support our program since 2014. We have um, leveraged about 70 million, maybe 65, 70, somewhere around in there total. Uh, with state funds and all of that, probably a little more than that. I got to go back and look at that. But there's no black organization business in Madison that has been as large or successful as we have been. 
Um, and we're a nonprofit because, you know, nonprofits in Wisconsin, for-profits can't run schools. So now we have one city preschool serving kids ages three months old to three years old, one city elementary school serving students four in 4K through fifth grade, and now one city preparatory academy, which currently serves children in uh, sixth, seventh grade, but will eventually grow through high school. Wow. Congratulations, man. Well, and here's the thing. The way you work, you saw it. You saw it in 93, 94, 95. That's right. So, but I can tell you, it's it's a blessing to see it realized. I imagine walking in the building mm -hmm. to see it, not to see it like, here's the Kaleem care, what Kaleem did, because that's not how you work. That's not, but to see the kids. And right. to see the teaching and learning happening that you envisioned, right? Yeah. That you were blessed to see and to see that realized. And God help you, the 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 commitment. You're talking about fifty, sixty million dollars mm -hmm. to bring together people that are saying we see it too, mm -hmm. You know, the community to support it. That's, it isn't just a congratulations to you and the teachers and the parents and the kids, but a congratulations to Madison in the state of Wisconsin, Thank because you. you've done something, as you and I would always say, truly revolutionary, mm -hmm. right? Yep. It isn't some big charter school operator companies coming in doing this. Nope. This is a local dude from the local community with the local people's help from building to building to building with local educators and parents and families who have worked together to find a way to fill the gap for kids. When you go from six students to over 400 it, and a waiting list, I'm sure you got, okay? It isn't like there wasn't a need. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us why? So you talk to parents all the time and you talk to kids all the time. Talk about why families choose one city and why educators have chosen to teach at one city. Yeah, families choose it, man, for um, the culture of the school. You know, we I tell people for us to turn around public education in America, we got to look at it like a like a really quality, successful business would. First thing you got to do is have a foundation. You got to have a strong foundation for anything you're building. If it's your family, right? It's the two people. It's the people that make up that environment that have to be able to work together. They got to be ready for the experience. They got to be committed and dedicated to it, even through the most challenging times. They got to be willing to grow together, willing to learn from one another. And then you got to have the environment has to be right, too. The ecosystem of support around you has to be there takes time to build that. You've got to get the building. You need a facility for a school. So all those infrastructure things have to be in place and they have to work well with one another. And that takes a while. Then you got to make sure you got a strong culture. And it's not just the culture among your staff. It's the culture because our clients aren't somebody who drives through our, our um, drive through and buys a McSandwich. You know what I'm saying? Our clients come to us and they're with us as long as we're there almost every day. And so you got to build a culture of those students because they also define what school will be like. And they've got to be immersed in a culture of what it means to be a student of excellence. And a lot of our kids come to school. They're not even students yet. So at our school, we call out our kids scholars. And our uh, head, of our, head of our schools, Maria Dislin, 
she's our elementary school principal, but also oversees K-8, said, you know, this definition that she found a student is somebody that is really ready to take their learning from somebody else. They're ready to show up every day, do the work, do, you know, read the books, submit the assignments, participate in class. They get their learning from their teacher. A scholar is somebody who's now driving their own bus. They're the ones who are pushing the teacher. I want to learn more. They're the ones taking advantage of opportunities that don't even exist in school. They're learning more at home on, on social media or YouTube or things like that to build upon their learning. They are taking command of it. So a student gets their commands from their teacher, scholar does it, you know, they command it on their own. So we're trying to take kids on this journey. So you got a strong foundation, you can build that culture. If you've got that mindset that kids believe they can learn and they're willing to dedicate themselves to it, and it shows up in how they show up to school every day, now the educational program, which is the third piece, can work. But it has to be successful. It has to be contemporary. It has to be modern. It has to be focused on preparing kids for a prosperous future. Um, for us, we're looking at preparing kids who actually will be transformational leaders. We want our kids to grow up with a mindset as a character-based school, that I'm compassionate, I have integrity, I'll take risk, you know, I'm resilient. I have these pieces of my life that I am going to um, be this person that not only moves me forward, but I'm going to move everybody forward around me. And so you can't build that, though, if your kids act crazy, your teachers don't want to be there, your parents act crazy, or if you don't have the right people in place to do the work. So that's where schools, it's like we we hire a new superintendent. They come in talking about we're going to get results. And then they look for the people they can cherry pick to see who's results minded. And then within a year or two, we're looking at, OK, you got a year honeymoon. Now where are the results? The year after year two. And then when year three, the results aren't there yet. Now we're talking about maybe we need to get somebody else. It takes five to seven years to build the foundation and the culture. So we're asking schools to rush through this process that is required to be successful, and therefore we are not succeeding. So at one city, we said, bump your test scores and all of that. Our kids were showing good growth, but we're going to focus on the foundation. Now we got a foundation and a culture. I tell anybody, want to come to a school, Dane County? No, nobody has a school as brown as us, man. We got 90% black and brown students. 61% poverty, the state, if you look at it from the food program, they said we have over 80% of the kids by their standard who are poor. And so, but you come through, you don't see any craziness. You see kids locked in and seats, learning. It's, it's unbelievable. It'll make you cry. And the educational program, the EL education project-based model at our elementary school and then the Angie play model at the at preschool up is working. So now I'm like, now let's look and see how we do this spring. Let's look and see how we do this spring after that. The results just start to show up. Mm. And so that's where, man, it's taking time and we have to, you have to be patient. And so you're doing some project-based learning. That's where, bro, I love it. When, I, when we were visiting some charters in Chicago, we went to Polaris Charter Academy Elementary School. You know Polaris? Oh. 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 You know those systems? The These women started a charter. They were both like Golden Apple teachers. And so they got a sabbatical 
Kaleem already knows this. I'm just telling y'all. And so during their sabbatical, they figure out how to start a charter school and they create a charter school 100% project-based. I still remember sitting at Polaris with kids and watching them use manipulatives in groups at tables to do math. Mm -hmm. And then at one point they were talking about carbon footprint with these elementary school kids. Mm -hmm. And they start analyzing, the kids start saying, well, let's figure out how much trash we throw away. And they take, they would take this trip to the dump. Like how much trash, what? So then the school, the kids decide with the help of the teachers, when they realize how much waste they're throwing away with Mm -hmm. plastic forks and plastic spoons and all these things, then they write a grant, the kids, with the help of the teachers, for um, uh, uh, a dishwasher and all these systems. So they had done all of the, and we're talking about elementary school kids who are on fire, right? Because it was all about, tell me the why. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the dump. Let's take a look at how that works. Let's take a look at what we're throwing away in our, because that was, they did all these field trips and they would go visit they visited the dump and that's what got the kids thinking, well, let's go through our trash and figure out what we throw away. Right. And you're like kids from, this was like inner city Chicago. You know, right. these folks claim, yeah. I mean, I begged them to come to Rockford, begged them. Cause those are the kind of teachers that we were re- looking for as charter administrators, operators, because the curriculum, I saw it working. Talk about your educators, your teachers, your folks who have chosen this path and to be on this journey with you at One City. Why have they chosen it? Uh, Mm -hmm. Chose it. Um, Tell me a little bit about their profile. Tell the folks the kind of educators that that are really the coaches for the kids. Yeah. And then back up to like the parents. You asked about that and answer that the parents are choosing it because they they like the diversity of our staff. Fifty percent student people of color on our staff of 100 people. Got a lot of t- black teachers, Latina teachers. We've got the mix. We've got male teachers, even at our preschool. Um, we've got uh, experience leadership across the board. And um, it's taken a while to build that because, you know, initially we couldn't afford that. <laughs> and so it's taken a while to get to that. But, you know, people are liking what they're seeing, man. Parents are happy. Their kids are playing sports. Like We have sports all the way down to kindergarten. No other school has that. Um, they play in the rec leagues at the Y, and then they also, the older kids play in the independent school league with the Catholic schools and other schools here. And um, we have academies we have because our kids are in the arts, they're in dance. We have partnerships with the university. Our kids are sitting courtside at basketball games. I mean, we're exposing them to everything we can. We do golf. They're doing first tee. We're building the cultural capital of our children, and parents want that. The staff love it, too. They love being around the diversity. They love having colleagues that are all about it, that are serious about children. They know that we support them. We have a very good compensation package for our staff. Um, Our preschool teachers are the highest compensated preschool teachers in Wisconsin. They get 401k. I don't think anybody over there makes less than 42 grand a year. Um, They get four. And then the average preschool teacher makes somewhere between 12 to $13 an hour. Our teachers make well over $20 an hour. They get 401k, they get other perks. So those things that help their family are in place. They also can have their children go to our school, but they can also access our preschool on a discount. 
And so we started our our um, preschool. We brought it back to three months old. That program is just for our staff. And so my executive assistant uses the, her daughters in our public four uh, K program, and her um, her youngest child is in now in our infant care program. And she's like, Kaleem, you guys are saving us eight hundred dollars a month. And it was very difficult for them to find infant care. So because our staff know we care about them, plus when teach when you know you always have some parents that'll cuss you out and stuff like that. Man, we jump in. We don't let people cuss our teachers out like that. So because they know we have their back, um, we give them good time off, things like that. It's just a good vibe, brother. People love being there, man. And like I'm, I'm, I'm actually on sabbatical right now, as of two days ago, for four months. Because I'm trying to rest, but think about what's the next thing that would get us to that next level. And I'm sad. I've been sad the last couple of days because I can't see my people, man. It's like literally I love being around these people. I love it. And so that the vibe is there and it takes that to produce the kind of result that we want to produce. But then the question is down the road, could we replicate that? Right. I think we can if people, you know, they'd have to cycle through one city so they could see like yeah. this is the culture that we're building well and that's and the the thing is and the one thing to be to throw out a little bit of your business you have cares that work in that school yeah my two sons yeah your and boys that's so right. one of the things that i've learned in my work especially as i pivoted into higher ed spaces is that that is my biggest recruiting tool mm -hmm. because see i get the right of first refusal like you start with me when you're a freshman and I get to develop you and you get to pour in and make an investment. I mean, what we're doing at UK and we've done at Bama and we've done at these other campuses, the best thing is this, this tiered mentoring. And we always start, I always start with hiring freshmen because then just like an athletic program, you can just walk away. By the time you're three years in, your juniors and seniors are running everything. That's right. They have the students, okay, this is what we expect here. This is what it means to be a wildcat. This is what it means to roll with the tide. This is the kind of structure and expectations we have. And then you end up hiring them. Because mm -hmm. the beauty of higher ed is they come work for us. They can get a master's degree for free, right? So we can pay them pretty well. And on top of it, but that's where... You know, as you're, you've done such a great job of letting the time go through, your scholars are going to end up being your educators. That's they're right. going to end up being your administrators. They're going to end up being your accountants because yep. they're going to credit the program and the school. They know the culture more than anybody. Mm -hmm. So those are your people that are starting your other campuses because you ain't got to teach them the culture of one city. That's right. They're products of the culture of one That's city. That's right. That's right. We're Just like your boys are products of the culture of one city, because the culture of one city is the care culture. That's right. Right. Uh, you get it. That's right. That's absolutely right. Right. I That's mean, right. we go back a long way, but gosh, dog, we have, we always pick up like we never uh, left each other. So that's, right. that's really to me. That's really the next thing is giving the time, because what you what I'm thinking is we don't want to mess up what you've all already built. And the only people that can build it are people that are products of it. That's right. That know it, that feel it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really powerful claim. How can, because you've said y'all are a nonprofit. 
how can folks, and we're going to put this in the show notes, but how can folks support that are listening? How can folks support One City Schools? So one, three ways people can support us. Money is always there. People can donate online on our website, onecityschools.org. One spelled out. Um, they can reach out to us through the website too at info at onecityschools.org. Just email us and people will get back to them to figure out how they can help financially. Um, we are always looking for alignments of programs that can build upon the program, the project-based learning program that we have at our schools, but also opportunities for our kids to come visit. Like we, Our kids are going to start taking trips. Our elementary, our preschool kids will travel Dane County, get to know the county where they live. Our elementary school kids will get to know the state of Wisconsin, um, the culture of it, so they're culturally competent in the diversity of our state. And then the, um, middle, the middle schoolers will travel the country. And when we bring high school, they'll travel the world every year. They yeah. got to do the trip. And so if there are places that people feel like would be good for our kids to go and learn, or if there are people that would like to pipe in on Zoom in areas of STEM or literature, or, you know, they're involved with, um, you know, figuring out how to address the water quality issues that are affecting, you know, our country and our world or the geopolitical challenges that are happening internationally, mm -hmm. they're help. They're very welcome to reach out to us through info at onecityschools.org. Our team will talk to them and we'll zoom them in. They just zoomed with a NASA scientist, a guy who works for a company, but he builds brother. He designs the spacesuits that they're wearing in space, you know, and he talked talk about project base, right? Yeah. Mark Street, who is the lead structures engineer on the rocket, the Falcon rocket that SpaceX is, um, was able to launch. He's from Madison. He was the student. So we're talking time, talent, and time, treasure. Time. Is what you're looking for. One of the other keys, because you're my guy, I'm sure that if people, because we'll put your contact in the show notes, I'm sure if folks are thinking of how do I do this? Okay, I'm interested in my community. I'm mm -hmm. interested in doing some of these same <clears throat> things. I'm always going to lift you up, bro, and mm -hmm. say you could. I'm sure Kaleem Care is available for consulting, speaking opportunities. Yeah, yes? I would love to do that. Absolutely. Some folks just reached out to me from Florida about doing something with them. Um, what is it in March or May or May or June? And so I'm always open to do that. I'd love to come talk to people, talk them virtually in person, help people, you know, think through some of their plans. Absolutely. Kaleem, thank you, man. Happy you 2024. Thank you for all you do, brother. It's great to see your face. Thanks for having me um, on. It's more than anything. It's great to have you continue shoulder to shoulder in the work, man. Brother, Blessings to you. Blessings. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website here adamspeak.com where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.